Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast, episode 76. Each week we dig deep into topics and questions to discover what the Bible says. Today I'll investigate the I am statements made by Jesus. Also, did Jesus' family witness any of his miracles before he was crucified? But first, why was God born as a man and not a woman? Let's find out. Are there any theories as to why God made himself a male human in Jesus and not a female? Fascinating question. Um, and uh, I guess to summarize here, could Christ have come as a woman and not as a man? And I've just been kind of thinking about this because it would be a little different. If, if Christ came as a woman, then her name could not be Jesus because uh, Jesus or Jesus uh, or Joshua is a man's name. And, and I don't know, does it have a female equivalent? So Jesus, the name means saviour. So if the Christ, the saviour, were a woman, her name could be, if it was a Middle Eastern name, something like Fadia, F-A-D-I-A. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Fadia. It doesn't really have the same ring to it, does it? But anyway, my mind's been going uh, too active uh, thinking about those things. It's an interesting question. And, of course, Jesus was a man and not a woman, and so God obviously wanted a man to accomplish the work of redemption. The question probably is then why? Um, could a woman have also done this work instead of a man or was the choice of a man essential? And I believe it was, and I'm going to share my reasons um, for that. So to discover the reason, we need to reflect on the beginning of the redemption story that we find in Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 26 is the first time that man is mentioned. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man or mankind in our image, in our likeness. That's the first mention of mankind in the scriptures. The Hebrew word is ordorm. And we get our English name Adam from that. So mankind or dorm created in the image of God. And then in verse 27, the next verse of Genesis 26, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. It's a very convoluted way of uh, of describing something. And as I've talked about in time past, the mention here of male and female is a merism. A merism is the mentioning of two extremities to define the whole thing. So we might say, oh, everyone was there, people from near and far. So what it's talking about is people who are near and far and everybody in between. We might talk about the young and the old. It's a merism. There were young and young people and old people, but everyone in between as well. And so when it mentions here, right at the beginning of the scriptures, male and female, he created them. He's talking about the extremities, male, female, and everything in between. So even 
right at the beginning of God's revelation here, we see gender diversity introduced. And God calls them dorm. The English translation is kind of mankind or humankind is what they're called, and we get our English word Adam. So that, that's the first creation story. And there are two creation stories right at the beginning of the Bible. The first of them is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through to Genesis 2 and verse 3. And then at Genesis 2, 4, the second creation story starts, and it's a completely different story. I invite you sometime in the next few days to just sit and reflect and read again Genesis chapter 1 uh, up to and Genesis chapter 2 up to verse 3, and, and then Genesis 2, 4 onwards, and look at the differences between those two stories. You can't actually marry those two stories together because the second story is completely different to the first. And so in the second story, God actually creates people before he makes plants. And so from that, what we get is that the first, well, these, these chapters, I believe the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are metaphorical in nature. They're not literal stories. They are stories that may contain facts, but they're not truth as fact. It, they're actually truth as meaning, which is a far deeper um, truth. When we read those stories, we need to ask ourselves what truth is coming through to me here? What does this mean? And then more importantly, how do I live this truth in everyday life? So truth as meaning, and then of course, truth as life. And so you can't match up these two stories. They're completely different. And so the Bible is showing us there right at the start, don't take these literally, take them metaphorically, and then learn the amazing truth that you find in those two chapters. If you want some more teaching along those lines on Genesis, um, then the Digging Deeper podcast, uh, number 11, is the episode that you would find helpful on that topic. So as you read these early chapters of the Bible, it becomes increasingly obvious, as I said before, that they are truth as meaning and not so much truth as fact. For example, Genesis chapter 3 records a fascinating discussion between Eve and a talking snake. I mean, go figure, and it all seems to be matter of fact when you re when you read through Genesis chapter 3. Eve is out for a walk. It appears at the beginning that she's on her own, <clears throat> and then sometime later her husband joins her. And so she's just walking through and she's admiring all the fruit trees and, you know, I can eat all of these. And then a serpent is there and kind of probably spirals down from one of the the, the trees and, and is looking her in the face and starts to talk. Now, if that was me, all you would hear is a very high-pitched scream and then you would hear the, the running footsteps into the distance because I'm terrified of snakes. But Eve just stands there and goes, oh, cool, a talking snake, and, and starts to have this dialogue like there's nothing strange going on here. Again, it's because this is not a literal, factual story, but there's, it's packed with truth. And I think if we get hung up on trying to find and trying to prove that all these stories are factually true, that there was actually a time when a woman was in an orchard having a conversation with a talking snake, then you really do kind of tie yourself in knots like you're being wrapped around with a python. And so in that chapter, chapter three, we read the story of the disobedience 
of this woman and this man who aren't actually identified by name until much later in the chapter when Adam names his wife. He calls her Eve, uh, which means uh, mother of all living. And so this man and woman, this husband and wife, are disobedient to the command of God. There was only one command back in the day, and that was you can eat all of the fruit from all of the trees, just don't touch that one. And so, of course, what are they fixated on? What do we learn here about human nature? <laughs> Tell us not to do something. Don't eat from that tree, that tree, but that tree, that tree, that tree's beautiful. Smell the fruit. That fruit's amazing. I want to, I want to eat that fruit. Forget that you're in an orchard and you've got fruit trees all around you. Suddenly you're fixated on that one. And there's truth as meaning there that then applies to our lives. And this story culminates in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 as, as God addresses the serpent. And, and these are the words of God to this talking snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I want you to notice there um, the comparison of injury. I'm sure if you're anything like me, you have hurt your foot at different times. Maybe you're barefooted and you're running and you stub your toe. And gee, that hurts, doesn't it? And and those words that come out of your mouth, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, <laughs> or other words maybe. And uh, But you recover from a struck foot, but he will crush your head. And I dare say there's no one watching me or listening to me right now who has ever had their head crushed and has recovered. You don't recover from having a crushed head, but you do recover from having a struck heel. And so God here uh, is talking to the serpent. Christians believe that this, this verse is a promise of the coming Messiah who would reverse the curse that we read of here in Genesis 3 and bring redemption to the human race. And so the story in Genesis 3 teaches lots of truth. One truth is that people are imperfect. And we've looked at this in time past on, on, on other editions of, of the podcast, um, that, that uh, the word sin in the Bible, for example, means to fall short or to miss the mark. It's uh, an archery term that doesn't matter how hard you try, there are occasions in life where your arrow is going to fall short of the target or it's going to miss the target completely. It's going to veer off and you're not even going to come anywhere near, near close to hitting the target. That's what the Bible refers to when it talks about sin. It's that sometimes we hit the mark, but other times we don't. Um, sometimes we fall short. Sometimes we miss the target completely. That's what the Bible talks about sin here. And the beautiful truth is that when that happens, God provides grace that redeems our mistakes. It appears that God places the responsibility for this upon the man in the story in Genesis chapter 3. And so then the New Testament picks up this theme and applies this to Jesus. And so Adam first appears in Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 and verse 38. Luke describes Jesus as being the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then Adam appears in Paul's letters to the Romans and the Corinthians, and Paul picks this theme up 
from Genesis and applies it to Jesus as Saviour. And so uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, for example, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then if you look at verse 14, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. And so people still died, right, because sin was reigning in the human race and people still died between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, even though there was no law at that point. And understanding that we only know the difference between right and wrong is when people tell us what's right and what's wrong. Although I dare say, of course, we have the law of God also written on our heart. We have a conscience that automatically tells us when we're doing the right thing and when we're doing the wrong thing. But back in the time of Adam, as I said previously, there was only one commandment, and that was don't eat fruit from that tree. And so death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. And then, of course, in the time of Moses, the law was introduced, and then finally people understood what was right and wrong. It was all written down literally in stone. But we're told here by Paul that Adam is a pattern of the one to come, that is the Messiah, Jesus. The Greek word there for pattern is typos. Uh, we get our English word type or figure from that. And, and, and in the Greek, it means a figure that's formed by a blow or an impression. If you think about um, our coins, for example, they used to be stamped hard with a the, the profile of Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, the newer coinage, I imagine, I haven't seen it yet, but probably will be stamped, maybe it already is, with the face of King Charles. And so that's what that Greek word means, typos. And so Adam was a typos, was an impression of the one that is to come. So we can look at the story of Adam and then we can see in this story reflected the coming of the Messiah of Jesus. Um, in verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? And then verse 18 of chapter 5 of Romans, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. We don't have time to do a deep dive into Romans chapter 5 um, today, but I do encourage you at some point in the not too distant future, if you can sit and just quietly reflect uh, on these verses in Romans chapter 5. And Paul, he seems a little bit unsure. In some of the verses, he talks about um, uh, the trespass that led to uh, many dying, uh, and then God's grace and the gift that came by grace of one man, Jesus, overflows to many. But then in other verses, like verse 18, for example, he says one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people. And so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And so you can't have it both ways. You know, if, if um, all people are considered sinful, and we Christians believe that 
all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God or miss the mark of God's standard of his perfect character, if that's true, then also all people must receive justification and life because of the righteous act of Jesus Christ through his life, death and resurrection. And so Paul writes similar things then to the Corinthian church. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 21 and 22, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so there's that word all again. And uh, the word all comes from the Greek word meaning all. And so if we believe that all people are sinful and all people die, then we must also believe that all people have been redeemed and all people will be made alive uh, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' work was to reverse the curse, as I said before, pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. I believe the choice of a man was essential to provide for the redemption of all people, but that is not to say that women are in any way less than or inferior to men. But because of the type that Adam is as a man, it needed a man to complete redemption. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. In the book of John, we see the I am statements. In chapter 18, verse 6, Jesus says, I am he to the Roman soldiers, and they drew back and fell to the ground. A cohort's around 200 to 500 soldiers, says Mark. His question is that statement that Jesus speaks in verse 6, an I am statement. Okay, so for context here, the I am statements that Mark refers to are the seven declarations that Jesus made and that are recorded by John in his gospel. So seven of them. Number one, I am the bread of life. You'll find that in John 6. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Number two, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That's in John chapter eight. The third I am statement, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Number four, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. That's John 10. Uh, number five, I am the resurrection of the life. John 11, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then number seven, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And we find that final I am of Jesus in John chapter 15. And so with that context, Mark, back to your question, is the statement that Jesus spoke 
to the Roman soldiers an I am statement? The short answer is no, I don't think it is. I don't believe that declaration is an I am statement. Um, it doesn't really qualify because all of Jesus' I am statements had a qualifying clause that went with them. Uh, in all other cases, Jesus added a description to the I am relating something to his purpose. So I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the true vine and so on. Whereas the pronouncement at his arrest was simply I am without any modification. And so it's different to the seven. I should add as well that Jesus did not say to the soldiers, I am he. The word he was added uh, by the translators because they thought it added to the understanding. I disagree. I actually think it takes away from the incredible power of Jesus' words. What Jesus said to them was simply, I am, which is likely a reference to the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. When he was standing at the burning bush, one of the first things that Moses wanted to know was God's name. We read the story in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. It sounds a little cryptic, doesn't it? Uh, so what is this? I am who I am is composed of four Hebrew consonants. Now, remember, Hebrew <clears throat> does not have the English alphabet. They have different letters uh, to ours and more of them, I believe, or is it slightly less? Um, but if we transliterate <clears throat> these Hebrew consonants into English, we come up with Y-H-W-H. This is known as the tetragrammaton or tetragrammaton. Um, Y-H-W-H is actually an unpronounceable name. And my Jewish friends will never write this name. They won't even write the name of God. It'll always be G-D because it's a sign of respect. It's an unpronounceable name. Um, and in fact, in biblical Hebrew, vowels are rarely written. We English speakers, of course, have no such rule and we're happily insert two vowels into YHWH and come up with Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh then is a prophetic name that announces who God will be to his people in the future. And, and, and that's got to be great news. I mean, think about the people of Israel at this point, right? Moses is being called by God to go back to Egypt and to be the deliverer for the people of Israel. And Moses is reluctant. In fact, he gives God five reasons why he's chosen the wrong person. And in the end, God gets a little miffed with Moses and, and says, for goodness sake, just do it. And so this is a prophetic name, Yahweh. It's who I will be for you. And if you've been in slavery for 400 years, what do you need God to be? Well, you need God to say to you, I am he who will be your deliverer. And so in the Tanakh, God revealed himself to Israel by seven I am or Yahweh names. Um, seven, yeah. Yahweh Rapha, we read of in Exodus chapter 15, I am the one who will heal you. Yahweh Nisi in Exodus 17, I am the one who will give you victory. 
Yahweh Mkadesh in Leviticus 20, I am the one who will sanctify you. Yahweh Shalom in Judges 6 and verse 24, I am the one who will give you peace. Yahweh Rohi in Psalm 23 and verse 1, I am the one who will be your shepherd. Yahweh Tzitkanu, Jeremiah chapter 30, 33, I am the one who will be your righteousness. And Yahweh Shamar in Ezekiel 48 and verse 35, I am the one who will be there for you. And so in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, we find those seven I am's of Yahweh. And then we get into the New Testament and discover the corresponding seven I am's of Jesus that I've already mentioned. And so back to the story that we read of um, in John's gospel, John tells us that Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. They came at night, of course. It's unlikely that these were Roman soldiers. They were more likely to be the Levite temple guard. And so they were all Hebrews who would have great respect for Yahweh. A Roman detachment or cohort would be a tenth of a legion, and so that would be 600 soldiers. However, it's unlikely to have been that many people on this occasion. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? And he knew full well who they'd come from, and they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus just said, I am. And John puts in brackets, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Wow. A pre-Christian Jewish tradition said that when Moses pronounced the name of his God, Pharaoh fell backward. According to the Bible background commentary, and I quote, if Jesus' hearers had thought he was pronouncing the divine name, they might also have fallen back in fear because magicians were said to try to cast spells in that name, Yahweh. The words Jesus used here are exactly the same Greek words as Jesus used in his seven I am statements, ego e me. By saying this, Jesus was identifying himself as Yahweh, the eternal God who always was, is, and will be. No wonder everyone drew back and fell to the ground. In fact, the thing that really stands out to me in this story is that no one could have arrested Jesus if he didn't want them to. He had to willingly actually allow them to arrest him because he could have said, I am, and they all fell backwards, which they did. But they could have all got up and he could have just said, I am, and they all would have fallen over again. They could have kept that up all night, but he didn't. He demonstrated who he was, the power of who he was, but then he gave them freedom to arrest him, try him, mock him, torture him, and crucify him. John 18 and verse 6 is not considered to be one of Jesus' I am statements. It certainly was a proclamation of Jesus' claim to be God in human form.
Did Jesus' family witness any of his miracles before he was crucified? Um, Mary certainly did. In fact, if you think about the first miracle uh, that Jesus ever performed that John records in his gospel in John chapter 2, and that was the turning of water into wine. Jesus and his mother and his disciples were at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and these were seven-day wedding feasts. You know, marriages and weddings have changed a lot over the years, and they are not the same uh, today in Australia as they would have been in the first century Middle East. And so they were at this celebration, and one of the worst things that could happen during a seven-day feast with family and friends, and family and friends would come and go during this time. The people would leave, they'd go to school or work or whatever, but then they'd come back and the celebrations would continue. The worst thing that could happen was that anybody would run out of food and wine. And they appeared to have plenty of food, but they ran out of wine. And so Mary hears about this and she knows who Jesus is. She knows that he's her son, but also that he is the divine son of God. And she knows what he has the power to do. And so she goes to him and says, um, they've run out of wine. And he appears to be fairly blunt with her. And he, and he says, woman, what has that got to do with me? Uh, my time has not yet come. And what he's referring to is the, is the ticking of the clock down toward the cross. And, and basically he's saying, you really want me to do this? Do you want me to start my ministry? Are you ready knowing the end is in sight as soon as I start doing this? And, and I think the answer is yes, because she just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And, uh, and so they do. They fill up those ceremonial jars with water and then Jesus says, draw some out, and they do. They take it to the master of ceremonies. He sips the wine, and it's amazing. He turns water into the very best wine, and it was good. You know, people said, wow, you know, every, every wedding we've ever been to, they always serve the best wine first. And then as people get well drunk, they dish up the second best wine and the third best and so on, but y y you've saved the best for last. And it tells us there in John that Jesus revealed his glory through this miracle. What that means is that Jesus showed who he really was because only God can turn water into wine. I know. I have tried for years, you know, it's like this is water. Jesus, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can make this wine, but you know what? It's still water. And so Jesus showed who he was, God in human form, and he turned water into wine. So Mary knew exactly who Jesus was, and she saw at least one miracle. I imagine she saw more than one. As for the rest of the family, we're not told if they witnessed any of his miracles or not. Uh, John does tell us later in his gospel in chapter 7, verse 5, that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Uh, we could deduce from this that they hadn't seen any of his miracles. Maybe that's true. The one miracle they did see was Jesus' resurrection, and it was that miracle which finally convinced them of who Jesus is, and then they placed their faith in him, not as their brother, but as their saviour. And so they didn't believe who he was, and you can kind of understand that, can't you? Like he, 
they all grew up together. Can you imagine if you've got an older brother, suddenly <laughs> he announces to you and the rest of the family, oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah. I'm the coming Christ. Here I am. I'm here to save the world. And you would roll your eyes and think, yeah, right, whatever. You'd probably mock and and uh, and be derisive the same way that Jesus' brothers and maybe his sisters were as well. They didn't believe in him. But then you watch your brother get arrested and tortured and crucified, and you watch him die on a cross and then a Roman soldier taking a spear and thrusting it into his side and blood and water coming out. And then you watch him be taken down from the cross and his limp body embalmed, wrapped in bandages and oils and spices and laid in a tomb and you think that's it. But then three days later you meet him face to face and and that would do it, wouldn't it? That would convince you finally that this nutbag brother of yours who's been banging on for years about being the saviour, my goodness, he actually is. And so when we read in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 14, that the Christians were all together, constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And isn't that wonderful? And I presume his sisters were there too. And so they believed in him because they saw the miracle of the resurrection. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please get in touch with us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page or email connect at baysidechurch.com.au. Next week, Pastor Rob will investigate the ancient teaching that the four faces of the cherubim reflect, the four Gospels and the work of Jesus. Also, the lesser known of the 12 apostles, who were they and what did they achieve? All that and more on next week's episode of Digging Deeper.